Thank you. All kinds of thoughts run through my mind when you say executing like a pro. Is that like bounty gate, that kind of executing? I don't know. Um, probably not. It's probably uh, doing your, your uh, discipline, whatever you do, in the most professional way. I'm glad to be with you today as we continue our series called I Wonder. And today we're talking about I Wonder. Do I have to believe everything that is taught in the Bible? In just a minute, we're going to open up our Bibles or you can open up your smart device and go to the live app there. And we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verses 14 and following. But we're going to also reference a lot of other scripture as we think about what does the Bible teach uh, concerning itself, and why do we even accept and believe that? Uh, there is a white space on the back of your handout, or if you're listening at home, I encourage you to have a piece of paper and, and uh, write the text number down for one thing if you want to text in a question, but also some other scriptural references that I may uh, suggest to you uh, based on what we believe, teach, and confess concerning the scriptures. Let's begin with uh, just a dedication of this moment to the Lord uh, as, as I pray for myself. May the words of my mouth, the things that I say, may they be faithful and true. And may the thoughts of everybody here together as they listen, may they also be subject, faithful and true uh, to what you would have us believe, teach, hold, confess, and practice. Lord, help us to do what we cannot do in our own spirit. We ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, I think this is an incredible topic. It's an important topic because Every week, either Pastor Dion, Pastor Ryan, myself, somebody's up here and they open up the Bible and say, let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. But when's the last time you ever heard us say, and this is what we believe about the Bible? I mean, week in and week out, we take this Bible and we teach from it. We also do that at weddings and at funerals. And we say, this is a faithful book. You ought to listen. But what do we mean by faithful book? Because we know that every Christian church... Uh, uses basically the same Bible, but they don't all look the same. They don't all sound the same. And uh, truth be known, they don't all teach the same. So what do we believe, teach, and confess about the Scripture in this place? You know, these teachers who are talking to you now, that's a good question. I find in my experience with American Christians is that mostly we judge the book by the cover. We really do. You know, we, we take a look at who's up there. We take a look at the kind of church that we're in. And we draw some conclusions based on superficial appearance. Often we'll say, you know, if we're in a traditional environment and the pastor's dressed traditionally like I am today. If he has robes on, he has a collar on, and they're using liturgy, and, you know, they're doing very traditional things, then they're probably a very conservative church. They probably have a very conservative view of the Bible. On the other hand, if we come to a place where, uh, you know, the, the dress, the songs, and the culture is very contemporary and very progressive, we say, oh, they probably have a progressive view of the Bible. They're probably kind of loose in their understanding of the Bible, probably liberal in their understanding of the Bible. You know, I think those are stereotypes that we make about churches, which I don't find to be true at all. Really don't. You know, some of the guys who are most traditional in their appearance may be the most liberal in their point of view regarding the Scripture. And conversely, those people that are most progressive trying to use the language, the culture, uh, to communicate a culturally relevant message, they might be some of the most conservative people when they open the Bible. But you do well to ask the question, what do these people believe about the Bible? So I'm happy to be here today. In fact, uh, about 20 years ago, I remember when we were uh, first introducing kind of contemporary music and beginning to do some things here, and, and I felt that people wanted to raise their hands in worship, but they were like, don't think that's allowed here, or a person would do that, and somebody pulled their arm down. You know, I, 
you know, I began to feel that maybe I should set an example and say, that's okay here, you know? And so I'd raise my hands in, in worship, and, and I, I had a member of the congregation back in the day who he came up and says, Pastor Howard, I'm going to warn you, you know where this is going to lead? You know, pretty soon you're going to be talking to me about the latest vision that you had, the latest word from God that you had, and you're not going to be teaching from the Bible anymore. You're going to become one of those charismatic, you know, uh, preachers. And, uh, and I said, I don't, I don't believe that's going to be the case. I do believe that people do have, you know, I'm not against the idea that people might have God speak to them. I think that does happen. You could certainly say that in the Bible. But when it comes to the book, everything, even your visions, even your dreams, have to be weighed by what we know to be true. Amen? You know, test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because there are other spirits, false spirits have gone out into the world. And so we're going to continue to teach from this book. And he says, yeah, you say that now, but. And I saw him just a couple of weeks ago, and he said, because he left the church shortly after that because we weren't turning back. And I think it's okay to be emotive. You know, it's okay to have some emotion in worship. I mean, if you read the Psalms, there was some feeling in the Psalms, right? And uh, it's okay to use modern terms and modern language, modern instruments to sing God's praises. It doesn't mean we're headed in that direction, you know, in terms of uh, compromising our belief. I saw him recently, and uh, he said, how's it going, Pastor Howard? We're still good friends. And I said, it's going awesome. He goes, yeah, that's what I hear. And I said, you know, I'm still not preaching on my visions and dreams, though. And he goes, I know, I know. So, it, you know, but, you know, people do make those superficial judgments sometimes about the church. So it's good for me to address that stereotype, I think. And also to just uh, straight up just tell you what it is that we teach and confess about the nature of the Bible. First of all, we say the Bible is inspired, inspired by God. And if that's a compound word in the Greek language. And, and if you translated that word literally, it means God-breathed. The Bible is God-breathed. You know, it, it's actually the literal word of God. And you say, well, what do you mean by that when you say God-breathed? And I would say this is the first passage I might write down if I were taking notes. I already taken notes, so I've got it written down in my Bible. Uh, but if you're taking some notes, you might write down 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. And... Uh, I kind of line up with Peter on this because Peter's talking in this uh, general letter to the church at large why you should believe what he is saying. He said, we did not follow the, the 12 disciplines he's talking about. 12 disciples he's talking about. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were eyewitnesses of these things. He said, I'm not just telling you what I feel or what I think about God. I'm telling you what we know to be true because we experienced it first and foremost by being there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the utterance was made about him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, when we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven about him on the holy mountain. Of course, he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, before Jesus went down to suffer and die in Jerusalem, he went up on this mount and uh, God appeared to him. And Peter, James, and John were there with him. And Peter's recalling that and said, you know, I was there. I heard the Father speak out of heaven about him. So we have this prophetic word made more sure. And you would do well to pay attention to it like a light shining in the darkness until that light dawns on your heart and the morning star arises in your soul. You know, and, until you come to believe what I know to be true. And then he goes on beyond his own personal experience, and he talks about what is a prophetic and trustworthy word. He says, know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own conjecture, one's own interpretation. No, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit actually prompted them to write what they wrote. This corresponds directly with what Jesus Christ said in the upper room when he was with his disciples before he was arrested. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and he will bring into remembrance all things. You say, well, you know, John wrote his gospel, uh, you know, a full decade after these experiences he had with Jesus. How can we know that his memory is that good? You know, mine isn't. Well, it says the Holy Spirit is going to bring into remembrance all things. And he's also going to teach him all things, things that he did not even know yet. So this is what we mean by inspiration, is that they had a special uh, God-powered ability to reveal God's exact word. So we believe God's word is inspired. We believe it's also inerrant. Inerrant. We don't use that word a lot. I feel like Fred Rogers saying, can you say inerrant? Inerrant. I knew you could. It, it simply means without error. It doesn't contradict itself. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. It's true. And uh, last week I referred uh, you to a um, booklet downstairs that's available in the bookstore, Reasons to Believe. You know, this is an objective historic document. Every other book that people use is, uh, uh, as a religious basis for their faith, teach you what you must do to please God. This is a historic record of what God has done to make you pleasing. Not what you must do, but what God has done for you. Amen? And because it's a historic document, you can check the history out. You can check it out in other histories. You can see prophecy and fulfillment. You can see archaeology. I mean, there are ways in which you can examine the facts of this book. And if the facts prove to be true, perhaps you ought to pay attention to the message that is contained around the facts. So we believe it to be inerrant. Here's how David discussed that word. Uh, he said in Psalm 12, verse 6, The word of the Lord is flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined times in a fire. You know, all the dross, you know, all that which is not true is burned away. And now you have the pure word of God. That's what we believe about the Bible. We believe it is efficacious. You know, another efficacious. It's not a word we use often, but it means it has power. It's not just true. It's not just good advice. It's not something you should pay attention to. Only this is unlike any other thing. You know, when you speak this, God goes to work on the hearts of people. You know, uh, Pastor Peterson right now is uh, teaching confirmation class to about 100 kids elsewhere. So much ministry goes on outside of this room uh, while we're in this room. But uh, he was doing that today. And, uh, and I remember when I used to teach that class, I would always say, yeah, young people, whenever the question on a test says, uh, by what power did God create the world? By what power does bread and wine become more than bread and wine and becomes the Lord's Supper? By what power does water and baptism become more than just water and baptism? The answer anytime you get a power question is the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the means by which God does things. It's the means by which He converts people. It's the means by which He converted the heaven, uh, uh, created the heaven. It, it's the means by which He still acts on people in life. And these aren't just my thoughts. This is what the Bible says, Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11. Just like the rain and snow come down from heaven and never return or evaporate without first watering the earth and making it do things, making it bear and sprout, furnishing seed for future sowing and bread for the eating, just like water is the life-giving force to earth, so is my word which goes forth from my mouth. It never returns to be empty without accomplishing what I desire without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. You know, God's word is powerful. 
And this is very important for us as Christians to know when we're witnessing to somebody who doesn't necessarily buy what we're believing. You don't have to win the argument. In fact, Paul said to the church at Corinth, you don't believe because I argued you into the faith. I was, you know, I was awful at arguing. I was with you in fear and trembling. No, you believe because of a demonstration of the Spirit through the Word of God that brought you to believe. You don't see Jesus chasing Nicodemus down the street saying, you cannot leave until you get on your knees and confess that I am Lord. You know, he let Nicodemus walk. You know, the Bible says some plant, some water, some harvest. You know, there's a process there. But you can have confidence that when you speak God's word, there is a power unleashed. It's not just true. There's also a power unleashed on a soul. And sometimes even the vehement arguments that you get from people, you think, wow, you know, why are you so disturbed? Why are you so troubled by that? It's almost an indication that the Spirit is working on them and disturbing uh, what they believed before. So we believe it's inspired. We believe it's inerrant. We believe it's efficacious. Now getting to our text, 2 Timothy, uh, Paul's last will and testament. Just think about this. If, if, if you're going to pass on uh, the somebody of knowledge and, and point out the most important things in a letter uh, to the person who's going to pick up your mantle to your son, uh, what would you write? That's the kind of letter that we have here from Paul to the young man, Timothy. He says, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Continue in the things you have learned and have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy, who did you learn them from? This is important for us as Christians too. You know, you may be the only Bible that somebody reads, somebody has said, and I think that's true. You know, they're not inclined to go pick up a book. Maybe they will after they come to believe what you believe. But at first, they're going to check you out and see, are you a person of integrity? And you are, are you a person who reflects the values of Christ? You know, are you compassionate? Are you loving? Are you gracious as God is towards us? Now, there were times when Jesus was in your face, but he was in the face of people who knew better, who were teaching error, religious leaders who were teaching heresy. That's when he got agitated. But with the people, he was gracious, he was kind, and he simply revealed the truth. Even the woman at the well who had been married five times, the man she was living with now was not her husband. Jesus was compassionate and gracious towards her. And uh, then the word of God went to work on her heart and things changed for her. So he says, and from whom you have learned them. You know, his uh, mother and his grandmother, it tells us earlier in the, in the book. Uh, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise to salvation. What makes him wise? The Bible. You know, it works in his heart, and it had proven to work in his heart and bring him to the wisdom of salvation, which is accomplished through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, because you know that, then know and have confidence about this book. For all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and therefore it's profitable for teaching. You know, how should I live my life? What value should I have? Here's what the Bible has to say. Uh, it's profitable for reproof. You know, what you're doing is not right. And I'm not saying this because I, I, I want to be mean to you. I'm saying this because I love you. And I'd like to see you make course correction. How can you say that about somebody else unless you have an objective truth profitable for reproof and saying, well, what should I do? For correction, this is a better path. This is a better direction for the betterment of your life. And for training in righteousness, not only things that you should avoid in terms of sin and, and uh, bad decisions, but also things that you should engage for training in righteousness. So that the person of God may be equipped for every good work. We are not saved by our works, but our works uh, are the intention. Because we are saved, we live a life that's different from the lives of those around us. 
So getting to the question, do I have to believe everything that is taught in the Bible? Have you ever heard uh, somebody who's an expert in their field comment on the Bible? And, and uh, sometimes just because they're an expert in some field, people assume that they're an expert also in the Bible field. You know, take Bill O'Reilly. Do you know who Bill O'Reilly is? Your O'Reilly factor, raise your hand if you know this guy. Uh, conservative liberal. Conservative, somewhere right of God, Bill O'Reilly. You know, he's, he's, a, he's kind of a right-wing political uh, commentator. Uh, really extremely conservative. Uh, he was interviewing on his program uh, Bill Maurer. Uh, Bill Maurer, conservative or liberal? Extremely liberal, God-hater, thinks all Christians are idiots, can't believe that you accept anything that's taught in the Bible, and he never passes up an opportunity to say so. No matter what he's doing, no matter a comedy act or whether he's being interviewed, he always tends to blast Christians. It kind of makes you wonder why he has such an edge on him about those things. Well, they were together on Bill's program, and Bill was trying to find common ground, and of course, Maurer came out slinging against the Christians and against the Bible, and he was mocking the story of the ark, and Bill says, yeah, that's a silly story. Uh, Bill O'Reilly was agreeing with him about that, and then Bill must have thought in his mind, you know, a lot of my listeners kind of believe that stuff. And, and so he said, now, just, just so you know, Bill Maurer, I respect the Bible, and I take it as an allegorical book. I am a Christian, uh, but the New Testament is what I believe. I think, Bill, would you just be quiet on the subject of the Bible because you just show that you don't know a thing, you know, when it comes to that? Because, after all, Bill Maurer, if you believe the New Testament, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man returns. Jesus happened to believe, Bill, that Noah was real. You know, <laughs> so you can't just say you believe in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Because then you have to think Jesus is an idiot too. And, and Peter said the same thing in his epistles. So it just, it, it's just kind of crazy. You know, when you hear somebody uh, that you might trust in some area of life give you advice about the Scripture, would you just be discerning about that kind of stuff and, uh, and think about it? You know, have you ever uh, heard somebody throw up to you too? Oh, so you're a Christian, huh? So you believe it's wrong to tattoo your, Bible, or your body because the Bible says that you should not do that in Leviticus 19. Or does that mean that you don't eat pork or shellfish? Because the Bible forbids that as well. And do you know that if you're a woman and your husband gets into a fight and you go to his defense, do you know that uh, you're subject to having your hands cut off and women are supposed to wear hats in the sanctuary? Do you believe all of that? <laughs> Come on, you know, all Scripture is true, but all Scripture is not ex equally the same and not equally important. You know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are different forms of Scripture. You know, there are Scriptures that speak about the ceremonial practice of the Jewish people. You know, about lighting incense in the morning, lighting incense in the evening, and, and various practices that required them to go up to Jerusalem. Food that was unclean, food that was clean. The Bible in the New Testament says these things were a foreshadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. When Christ came, they had served their purpose. We are no longer bound by the Jewish ceremonial laws. You know, we don't practice the Jewish ceremonial laws because the Bible tells us they have served their purpose when Christ came. There are also political laws in the Old Testament that govern them as a political people living under political authority in the Old Testament. You know, if uh, your ox gored my ox, there was a certain consequence. Uh, if a horn blew this way, it meant line up because we're going to march. If a horn blew this way, you're supposed to line up because we're going to go to war. You know, we are not under that political system either. We don't follow those political laws. Now, there's also moral law. What was morally true in the Old Testament is true today, will always be true. What was morally wrong is wrong then, today, and ever. That's why we still teach our kids the Ten Commandments. But it doesn't mean that we treat all Scripture the same. You have to be discerning about the Bible, even though it's all true, understand its purpose, and understand how it was used. There are metaphors in the Bible. Jesus said, Herod is a fox. 
Did he mean that he was a small little animal that's cute and has a furry tail and can hike over fences? No, he meant he was sly. You know, he was, he was uh, uh, you know, uh, an interesting person who was able to get his way uh, through deceit. Uh, when he said, I am a door, he didn't mean he was a literal door. When he said, I am the living water, he didn't mean that you could drink him. You know, obviously, don't be silly. You know, some scripture is also figurative. It says that Satan is bound in chains. We know that Satan is a spirit. He's not bound in literal change. It's figurative language. He simply says God is restraining Satan for a time. You know, so understand the genre of the scripture, the literary style of the scripture that you are studying. Secondly, good people, even good scholars may disagree on the proper interpretation of the Bible. Uh, uh, that doesn't mean that that's a deal killer. You know, when it comes to sacraments, we know the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. We know that in our tradition we have two. We know that in some Reformed churches, none. You know, the Reformed churches say sacraments, not a word even found in the Bible. Why would I teach it? I say, well, it's okay, but, you know, the the teaching is found in the Bible. It means sacred action. I don't find it uh, harmful to use a word like that. Trinity is not found in the Bible yet, but it defines something that we believe to be true. And between us and the Roman Catholics, we just have a different definition. You know, we say it must be ordained by God or instituted by Christ, uh, not just by the disciples, not just a Christian practice, but it must have been commanded by Jesus. It must have a visible means. You know, the Lord's Supper has wine and bread. It must also yield spiritual blessing, as does the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we only have two. Roman Catholics have a different definition, and so they will have a different number. Doesn't make them right. Doesn't make us wrong. It just makes us different. And also regarding creation, you know, there are people sitting in front of me who are evolutionists or theistic evolutionists who believe that maybe uh, God, you know, uh, was involved in using evolution to cause things to uh, evolve in the matter of creation. They are not strict creationists. I'm a strict creationist. It's not a deal killer for me that you're wrong on this subject. okay i've entered into lots of debates and you know we can still be friends and we can still love jesus but i do believe that the bible does define how that gets done they say you know i believe god did it but maybe he did it through evolution well in hebrews chapter 11 it does say uh, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we cannot see even assurance about you know strong belief in what we cannot prove This is what the ancients were commended for, for by faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command. It doesn't say how. Yes, it does. It says by his command. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the waters teem with life, and they teemed with life. The universe was formed by God's command, for what is seen was not made out of that which is visible. You know, it didn't didn't evolve, in other words. So I think the Bible's clear on that. We can debate that. It's not a deal killer for me. We can still be Christians. We can still teach uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and be wrong or disagree about that. Finally, always ask or discern with teachers or uh, with uh, books that you're reading or uh, blogs that you're reading or uh, whatever uh, form of teaching that you're sitting under. Always discern what a person means when they say, yes, I believe the Bible is God's word. Now, back in the day when I was going to seminary, there was this uh, group of people who believed that the Bible was God's word, meaning that it contained God's word, but it also contained uh, the opinions of the day, that the the men uh, who wrote it were also subject to values and beliefs of their day. And so you have to sort out what was their opinion and what was the culture of the day from the kernel of truth. You had to be uh, critical about what you read because uh, the, the book contains the truth of God, but also other opinions that are not necessarily to be given the same weight. 
And then there were people who said, no, uh, I believe it is inspired. I believe it is true. And I believe what it says, if it's a literal teaching, it should be literally accepted. And Paul was not under the opinion of his day. What he wrote was, was true. I tended to line up with those people who were more heterodox, who said the Bible is God's word, doesn't just contain God's word. But I sometimes found those people were mean, judgmental, and kind of mean, angry people. And I thought, I don't like to be with them. The people here who are more liberal in their understanding, they're loving and gracious. I thought, why can't we combine those two? Why can't we be people who believe that the Bible is God's word, doesn't just contain God's word, and yet be kind and gracious? Amen? That's the kind of church we're trying to create here, and that's, the, that's what we're committed to do. Now, let me get to your questions. Uh, Mark Twain, let me leave you with this thought. Mark Twain said, you know, it, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me most. It's the parts that I understand perfectly well. These trouble me the most. You know, and I, I think that that's where I fall down, you know, regarding the Bible as well. Well, let's take a look at uh, some of your questions as you've uh, sent them in. Is it necessary to believe in the story of Adam and Eve? Could the story be a metaphor or is it a literal account of events? I happen to believe it's a literal account of events because it's referenced elsewhere in the Bible as a factual story. Uh, I believe that, you know, it does require a belief in miracles, things that are past normal, things that are unreasonable. But there's so much in our faith that is unreasonable. To believe in creation is unreasonable. To believe that Jesus changed water into wine, unreasonable. To believe that God became man, an unreasonable thing. To believe that he died and rose again, an unreasonable thing. So I believe it's a miraculous thing. I think it has to be uh, engaged by faith. But I think the rest of Scripture tends to refer to them as historic people. And so I accept them as historic people as well. Uh, why are there so many different versions or types of the Bible? Could there have been mis- uh, interpretation uh, through translation? Of course, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I may teach things that, you know, later I say, wow, I'm not sure if I was right on that. So I think that's always possible. You have to be like the Berean Christians in the book of Acts. It says they were more noble-minded than the church at Thessalonica because they went home after Paul taught something and studied the Bible. Is that really what the Bible says? And I think you have to know uh, the Bible that you're using. What kind of people translated that Bible? You know, what was their theological basis? You know, were they people who believed it contains God's Word or actually is God's Word? You know, what kind of people did that? Is this a translation that I have in front of me based on the original languages actually translated? Or is it a paraphrase using English Bibles that tries to put in a modern idiom the things that are taught there? There are different forms of Bible, and you ought to know the kind of Bible that you're using and who the people were who translated the Bible. So certainly there can be misinterpretation. That's why our pastors are taught to study the Greek and the Hebrew. You can find online good resources that are interlinear where you'll have the Greek and the Hebrew and then you'll have the English and you can click on that Greek or Hebrew word and you can study that even if you don't know a lot uh, because the internet provides you know some discussion about what that word meant and how it was used in those days that's a helpful tool how do we explain stories like Jonah and Noah to non-believers when they seem so far-fetched were there actual events or metaphoric? Now, I, I do believe that they were actual events. I, I don't think that I would start there and discuss that. I would say, yeah, that's, that's what I believe. I don't require that of everybody to believe. I don't think it's a deal killer. But I think the, the point of the story is more important than the actual facts of the story. But I don't disagree with the facts. But can we just agree on the point? You know, if you're not willing to accept the facts, can we talk about the point? Can we say that in the story of Jonah, that God wants all people to be saved and he wanted a prophet to go to Nineveh and convert people who did not believe so that they might believe in the true God? And Jonah had a, didn't want them to believe. He wanted them to suffer in their disbelief. 
and, and God said, no, I want you to go anyway, and he made him go. I mean, I don't care. Let's just talk about the point of the story. Let's not get into the facts. Uh, if you believe it's an allegory, can we at least talk about the truth that's told there? I happen to believe it's a true story. You don't, but let's talk about the point of the story, and let's start there. What does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage for a Christian? Well, uh, Malachi is pretty strong about that. It says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. Uh, but yet, uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, can a man divorce his wife? And uh, because Moses gave a writ of divorce in the Old Testament, you know, so he, they kind of trapped Jesus in a, in a question. If he says, uh, yes, they'll say, well, the Bible says, I hate divorce. If he says no, then they'll say, well, why did Moses do it? You know, they were trying to find the perfect question to trap him. And he said, you're right, Moses allowed for divorce. He said, but it was because you guys are hard-headed, you know, and because uh, human nature, and God wants you to live in peace with all people, to move on in life. Uh, there's even a reference in the book of Corinthians where it says we are not bound to a non-believer who leaves our marriage. You know, if a non-believer leaves our marriage, we're not bound under such circumstance. So there's a lot to be said on this subject. Let me just say this. It's not the deal killer. You know, if, if you have suffered that, that is not the unpardonable sin. For many churches, you know, it's, it's like you have the scarlet letter on you. You know, please know there's forgiveness for anything that's been done in the past. You know, we all know that that's a failure uh, in divorce. That's not what anybody enters marriage to do. And, but, but God isn't going to hold you to your past. He says, let's talk about the present. Let's talk about the future. You know, I died for your past. And I think that's where the church has to be on that. You know, let's move on. Let's, let's live in the forgiveness we have and let's learn the lessons of our mistakes. Even with Peter, didn't he say to Peter, after you've denied me three times, Peter, how big is that sin? After you've denied me, use your experience to strengthen other people. You know, learn from what you've been through. And I would hope that would be true of all of us who have experienced that kind of uh, trauma in our life. What does the Bible say? No, where we go? Uh, why are there extra books in the Catholic Bible? Well, let's talk about the books that are in the Bible. Uh, the books that are in the universally accepted Bible are books that can be proven to have been written by prophets and apostles. And uh, these, these are, are books that can be uh, authenticated as being written by one that was chosen by God to uh, tell the truth ab about God's ways and God's experiences. Uh, no book that's found in the Old Testament is not quoted by either Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament. And no book in the New Testament is accepted to be true that cannot be proven to have been written by one of the apostles or those who wrote under their authority. And, and so for that reason, we accept these books. There are extra books, apocryphal books, books that have been in question uh, since they were written uh, that cannot be proven to have been written by a prophet. There are also teachings in those books that contradict the clear teaching in books that there is no doubt they were written by a prophet or an apostle, and so we have rejected them. And uh, they will derive teaching from those books that we do not accept because they are not canonical. There's a good resource in, in Lutheran Hour Ministries. You can go on site, uh, how we got our Bible, how books were chosen to be accepted, and how they, others were rejected. And uh, you, can, you can order that. It's a little CD, a little DVD. I would encourage small groups to take a look at that. It's very well done, and that might be helpful to you. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Why do so many experts get different meanings from the same verses? That's a good question. You know, uh, my Bible is written by Dr. Ryrie. Uh, he's a, a professor at the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, uh, uh, SBC. He's a, a professor down at Dallas Theological Seminary. He knows a lot. You know, he's probably an expert in more ways than I am about the Bible. And yet he doesn't accept 
uh, baptism as being anything special except a dedication to God. He doesn't believe anything happens in baptism. You know, so when you get to Peter's discussion where Peter says, Baptism doth also now save you, not by removal of dirt from the flesh, but by an appeal to God, claiming a, claiming a, a cleansed conscience by the power of Jesus Christ. Pretty clear to me. Baptism doth also now save you. If you read Dr. Ryrie's notes, he says at the bottom, Of course we know baptism doesn't save anybody. I don't, I don't know how he... I, I think you just know... Uh, and, and have been raised in this belief so you have blind spots. Look at all the people who had all the prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus. And when Jesus came fulfilling those prophecies, they were looking for an earthly king. And Jesus wasn't that. They were looking for someone to be like David. He wasn't that, so they rejected him. I think sometimes we can think in our mind this is the way it must be so that we just are blind to some things. But I got to say, when I think Dr. Ryrie is blind to that, I think, well, what am I blind to? Because I may be blind to some things as well. So I pray for an open heart. I pray to be guided and, and led uh, by God's Spirit and always be willing to be challenged in the views that I hold to be true. We're out of time. Uh, I refer you to the podcast this week as Pastor Peterson and Pastor Garrett continue this discussion of questions that you have raised or have been raised in other services that they will discuss uh, in their radio type uh, discussion group. It's a fun thing to listen to and it's also very helpful, uh, especially during this series. That's available to you. Uh, let me just have you rise. We're about to receive the Lord's Supper. And uh, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, let's just acknowledge our need for God's grace and God's forgiveness. I said in my message, uh, 